December 13, 1727. Afternoon light shone through the open roof of the Theatre Royal. Eager patrons flooded into the venue, excited to watch a play that no living person had ever seen before. Nobility sat in elevated boxes, wearing their powdered wigs, white stockings, and resplendent hoop dresses. Excited scholars, critics, and property owners crammed themselves onto benches on the raked dirt floor. In the back, artisans and servants craned their necks to catch the barest glimpse of the stage. They'd all paid the premier fee to see the event of a lifetime. Playwright Louis Theobald's new play, Double Falsehood, was allegedly based on legendary manuscripts, the only surviving copies of William Shakespeare's lost play, Cardinio. The audience was there to witness nothing short of a resurrection. After a century of wars, fires, and disasters, many feared that Cardinio was gone forever. The debut of Double Falsehood would make history. But since the play ran in 1727, scholars have questioned Theobald's claims of legitimacy. He never produced the original Shakespearean manuscripts he used as a source material, and maybe never had them to begin with. That means his premiere didn't reveal the long-lost play after all. And if that's the case, perhaps Cardinio will never be found. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. Today, we'll examine the lost play, The History of Cardinio, supposedly written by William Shakespeare. Publishers' records prove Cardinio was performed, but the script never made it to print. We'll explore what the play may have been about and what might have happened to it. Perhaps an anonymous play from the same era called The Second Maiden's Tragedy was, in reality, the history of Cardinio. Or maybe the manuscript survived and playwright and Shakespeare scholar Louis Theobald eventually adapted them. If Cardinio or fragments of it still existed, they'd be a literary goldmine for historians. But in the miasma of rumor and misinformation, Researchers might not recognize the history of Cardinio, even if they did uncover it. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. William Shakespeare is one of the most famous writers of all time. The 16th century poet and playwright was incredibly prolific. Based on current scholarly consensus, Shakespeare wrote 39 plays before he died at the age of 52 but he may have penned even more than that. To this day, historians continually discover new manuscripts, or literary scholars conclude that he wrote a previously unattributed script. 
they identify similarities in handwriting and style to find unidentified Shakespeare pieces. Most recently, in the late 1990s, scholars concluded that he partially wrote the anonymous Edward III. In addition, academics and artists know he wrote two works that have completely gone missing. Records of these plays exist, but no one has ever found a copy. The two lost works are Love's Labors One and The History of Cardinio. Love's Labors One is believed to be a sequel to Shakespeare's tragic comedy, Love's Labors Lost. Love's Labors Lost follows four men, the King of Navarre and three scholars named Barone, Dumaine, and Longueville. They believe that they must devote themselves to study and eschew romance for three years. They sequester themselves at court and forbid women from coming within a mile of their home. A group of four women immediately violate the ban, and the scholars soon fall for their female guests. After a series of comedic mishaps and misunderstandings, the couples all pair off, declare their love for one another, and everyone gets engaged. But before they can move forward with the wedding, the king's lover, the Princess of France, receives urgent news. Her father has died, and she has to return to France to claim the throne. She and her female companions leave, but first, they ask their fiancés to swear an oath. They'll wait a year and a day for their lovers. The men agree, and the women leave. And... The play ends there. We don't find out if the couples ever reunite or if the men stay true to their vow. Love's Labor's Lost doesn't have an open ending. It doesn't have an ending at all. It's hard to imagine that Shakespeare ever meant for it to stand on its own. Hypothetically, a sequel called Love's Labor's One would wrap up all the loose ends and show the happy couples in their well-deserved weddings. Outside of textual analysis, there's not much evidence to prove that Love's Labor's One actually exists. The title was included in a 1598 list of Shakespeare plays, as well as a 1603 list of booksellers' stock. But there's no evidence that the play was ever performed. Theater writer David Grote believes Love's Labor's One was a placeholder title for another work, possibly the comedy As You Like It. Grote argues that it was common at the time for a play not to have a formal title until years after it was published. If Love's Labor's One was a separate original piece, it's been lost to time, and most scholars agree that it's unlikely that anyone will ever find it. But Shakespeare's other missing play, The History of Cardinio, had a more interesting past because it made its way to the stage. To better understand Cardinio, we have to go back to when it was supposedly written. In 1612, Jacobean England was the epicenter of the European world. Under the rule of King James I, London was a hub for trade and art. And if someone wanted entertainment, they had one option, the theater. No company was as beloved as the King's men, who performed at the legendary Globe Theater. Every theater company needed a patron, someone to pay for their productions, and the King's Men had the most prestigious sponsor of them all, King James. 
meaning the company was very well-funded and it was highly prolific. They boasted several celebrities of the stage, including a popular actor and playwright named William Shakespeare. They produced original works and adaptations of Jacobean pop culture. In Shakespeare's era, Spanish literature was a trendy source of inspiration. Eight years had passed since King James had signed a treaty with the Spanish Empire to end the Anglo-Spanish War. And with this peace came an incredible cultural exchange. Translators scrambled to bring works of literature from Spain to England. And people went wild for the novel Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes. It was a smash hit across the Spanish Empire. And in 1612, Don Quixote was published in English for the first time. Cervantes' epic had a new audience, which may have included William Shakespeare. It's only natural he might want to adapt it. Later that year, King James paid the king's men 20 pounds, or roughly $6,500 today, to perform a series of six plays for the royal court. Of those six plays, only one hasn't survived, Cardina. No one knows what the play was about, but the title Cardina bears a strong resemblance to Cardinio, the name of a prominent character in Don Quixote. It's possible the misspelling was a simple scribing error, since there wasn't a reliable English dictionary until the 1700s. Most scholars refer to the lost play as Cardinio based on this assumption. Given its title and historical context, Shakespearean scholars agree that Cardinio was an adaptation of Cervantes' novel, or at least a portion of it. Don Quixote tells the story of a man who becomes obsessed with chivalry and then convinces himself that he's a knight. But the would-be paladin Don Quixote causes more mayhem than good. He slaughters a herd of sheep, thinking they're an army, and attacks a windmill with a lance because he believes it's a mythical giant. While adventuring deep in the Sierra Morena mountain range, Don Quixote encounters a lovesick man named Cardenio. Cardenio is half-naked and nearly insane when he recounts his woeful story of how he lost the love of his life, Lucinda. Lucinda and Cardenio were in love, but their parents didn't approve of the relationship. They planned to marry in secret, but one of Cardenio's closest friends, Don Fernando, asked for Lucinda's hand in marriage. Don Fernando was the son of a nobleman, and Lucinda's parents agreed to the match. Lucinda told Cardenio that she'd kill herself during the wedding rather than marry Don Fernando. On the day of the ceremony, Cardenio hid just out of sight to watch. But Lucinda didn't follow through with her promise. She strode to the altar like a loyal bride. But before the ceremony was over, Cardenio fled, not wanting to see any more. The rest of the story follows Don Quixote's efforts to reunite Cardinio and Lucinda. In the process, they get caught up in various hijinks. In the end, the audience learns that Lucinda never loved Don Fernando. She fainted after Cardinio left, 
and her new husband discovered a letter she'd written confessing her relationship with the other man. Cardinio is overjoyed, and he finally marries Lucinda, and Don Quixote moves on to another adventure. The story reads like a checklist of tropes from Shakespeare's works. There are star-crossed lovers, like Romeo and Juliet, a dastardly villain similar to Angelo from Measure for Measure, cross-dressing, which appeared in countless comedies, including Twelfth Night, A Merchant of Venice, and As You Like It. And the whole plot ends in a marriage, just as nearly all of Shakespeare's comedies do. With all of these similarities, it makes sense that Shakespeare was eager to bring Cardinio's story to the Globe stage. But somehow, the world's most famous writer adapted his era's most popular novel and created one of the world's most obscure plays. Cardinio should have been world famous, but instead, there's almost no evidence that it ever existed. Somehow, in spite of its pedigree, the comedy disappeared. When we return, the history of Cardinio and how it went missing. And now, back to the story. William Shakespeare was a prolific writer in Jacobean England. Scholars believe that he adapted Miguel de Cervantes' bestseller novel, Don Quixote, around 1612. The resulting play was probably a comedy or tragicomedy called Cardinio. And maybe he had some help. In the 1610s, Shakespeare often collaborated with an up-and-coming playwright named John Fletcher. Together, Shakespeare and Fletcher wrote Henry VIII and Two Noble Kinsmen. Although there's little hard evidence to prove this, some scholars suspect that Fletcher co-authored Cardinio as well. This is because Shakespeare and Fletcher collaborated on almost everything at the time Cardinio was probably written, and because later records list the pair as co-writers. And Shakespeare needed all the help he could get. In his time, playwriting and publishing were cutthroat businesses. Not only did Shakespeare have to generate content for the theater, he had to navigate professional politics, jealousy, and rampant plagiarism. Copyright laws didn't exist in the 1600s. This meant that many companies performed other troupes' most popular plays, and the authors never got a cut of the proceeds. To avoid this, playwrights closely guarded their plots and dialogue during rehearsals. Actors couldn't read the full scripts and only received scrolls with their scenes. This is why actors today refer to their part as a role. But oftentimes the secrecy wasn't effective. Playwrights brazenly stole each other's ideas all the time. So after a play hit the stage, the writers shifted their focus to getting their scripts published. It was the only way to prove the script was written by them and build a professional reputation. And playwrights had to rush to secure credit because publishers didn't double check their source and anyone could claim they wrote the manuscripts they submitted. So publication functioned like a 17th century copyright, a way to prove that an author really had written their piece. 
That meant that for playwrights, it was more important to have their name in print than it was to actually sell copies of their work. After all, they made a living on ticket, not book sales, and publishing houses printed plays in the most cost-effective way possible. The most common form was in quarto. The play's text was stamped on cheap paper with four pages of the script on each side of a sheet, meaning each sheet of paper contained eight pages. Many of these editions deviated wildly from other versions of the text, leading literary scholars to suspect that some were written from memory by actors hoping to turn a profit. With these unreliable reproductions, sometimes the true version of the play got lost in the shuffle. In total, 21 of Shakespeare's plays were published in quarto, and much of his remaining material was kept at the Globe Theater. Unfortunately, a freak accident meant that most of his unpublished scribblings were lost forever. In 1613, the same year that the King's Men performed Cardinio at the Globe, they premiered another play by William Shakespeare and John Fletcher, King Henry VIII. Today, it's not remembered as one of Shakespeare's best works, but at the time, it brought the house down, literally. On June 29th, during one of the first performances, the King's Men used a cannon for a special effect, But when it went off, the theater's thatched roof caught fire, and the entire Globe Theater burned to the ground. Many records were lost in the blaze, possibly including the manuscripts of Cardinio. The play was never performed again in Shakespeare's lifetime. Three years later, on April 23, 1616, Shakespeare died. He outlived Miguel de Cervantes, the author of Don Quixote, by 10 days. Seven years after that, the first carefully curated compilation of Shakespeare's plays, known today as the First Folio, was published. It contained 36 works, but bore no mention of Cardinio. The First Folio was also filled with tiny errors. Literary historian and Shakespeare scholar F.E. Halliday asserted that there were at least 500 mistakes. Most, if not all, were small misspellings. Typesetters lined up block characters by hand to match what they read on a manuscript. They needed to place hundreds of letters perfectly on each page. And to make it more complicated, the press machine's block letters were mirrored. That meant typesetters wrote everything backward. For example, cat would be spelled T-A-C. Simple, right? Well, with pages upon pages of words and punctuation, it was easy for typesetters to miss the occasional typo. And some inaccuracies were intentional. Halliday claimed some lines were changed altogether because the typesetter thought their version was clearer or otherwise better. The publication of the first folio was a messy and imprecise process, but editors fixed some mistakes in later editions. They worked off of Shakespeare's quarto publications, but only 19 of his 39 plays were published in quarto before the folio. The rest of his content was assembled from various manuscripts, prompt copies, and rough drafts, 
which were referred to as foul papers. Cardinio wasn't so lucky. Since brevity is the soul of wit, let's get to the point. Getting a play to print in the 17th century was fraught with difficulty. It's remarkable that only two of Shakespeare's recorded plays didn't survive. But that all changed three decades later when a publisher claimed that they had the manuscripts for Cardinio. In 1653, publisher Humphrey Mosley released The Stationer's Register. It was a preview of the plays his company, the Worshipful Company of Stationers, would publish soon. The register listed Cardinio by John Fletcher and William Shakespeare. Unfortunately, Mosley was an unreliable record keeper. He frequently attached Shakespeare's name to works he didn't write in order to make them better sellers. So it's possible the entry for Cardinio was a lie. Regardless, in the 1640s, the entire country flew into chaos, and it seemed like the English public would never see another play again. Parliament rebelled against King Charles I, son of King James I. Led by Oliver Cromwell, the rebels fought a series of battles against the monarchy for most of the decade. Eventually, Cromwell and his forces prevailed, and King Charles was beheaded. But the new Puritan government banned theaters in London. They believed that their citizens should spend more time in church rather than worship at the altar of man's creativity. Plays were illegal until 1660 after Cromwell had died and Charles II restored the monarchy. Six years later, in 1666, Mosley's printing company burned down in the Great Fire of London. Thousands of pounds worth of literature were lost, and perhaps the only surviving copies of The History of Cardinio were destroyed, if they ever existed at all. That might have been the end of the story, at least until 70 years later, when the play reappeared in a surprising form. In 1727, Louis Theobald made a literary splash. He was a playwright and one of the first ever Shakespearean scholars. Though Theobald's previous plays were only mildly successful, he sent a shockwave through the London theater scene when he announced that his new tragic comedy, Double Falsehood, was an adaptation of Cardinio. Theobald reported that he'd acquired three separate manuscripts of the original Cardinio. They came from writers associated with the Lincoln Inn Fields Theater, which performed Shakespeare and Fletcher plays during the 1680s. Using his skills as a Shakespearean scholar, Theobald combined, improved, and added his own touches to the antique scripts. Double Falsehood wasn't a direct recreation, but it was in the same genre as Cardinio, pastoral tragic comedy. These tragic comedies focused on rural characters and settings, shepherds and forests, romance, and of course, duplicity. Double Falsehood was an adaptation of the Cardinio chapters of Don Quixote, and it employed themes that were common in Shakespeare's plays. For instance, 
the main conflict revolved around a love triangle. More tellingly, double falsehood abruptly changed settings in Act 4, a trick Shakespeare used in his tragic comedy, A Winter's Tale. The only substantial difference was that Theobald changed the characters' names from Don Quixote. For instance, Cardinio became Julio, and Don Fernando became Enriquez. We don't know why he did this, or even if it was Theobald's call. Maybe Shakespeare decided to change the names. We have no way of knowing, because Theobald never shared the manuscripts he allegedly based double falsehood on. Theobald's play premiered at the Theatre Royal on Drury Lane in 1727. It was an instant hit, but it was also mired in controversy from day one. Nobody could tell whether double falsehood was really based on Cardinio or if it was all a sham. Theobald wasn't known for being a liar. In fact, he was a well-regarded Shakespeare historian. But theatergoers knew he was also desperate to make a living as a successful playwright. It didn't help that Alexander Pope, another dramatist and literary critic, accused Theobald of lying about his play for publicity. But Pope was hardly unbiased. As another Shakespearean scholar, he was Theobald's professional rival. The two spent years discrediting each other's work. But modern historians have also questioned Theobald's claims. Tiffany Stern, a professor of Shakespeare, is skeptical. She claims that if Theobald did have manuscripts, they couldn't have been authentic. It was highly unlikely that Shakespeare's originals could have survived a century without anyone other than Theobald hearing about it. Instead, Stern believes that Theobald had a forgery, or at the very least, secondhand reproductions of Cardinio. Some publisher or theater company was looking to make a quick buck off a desperate playwright. But Theobald probably believed his copies were authentic. Why else would he guard them so closely? They were always with him or safely locked away in his study in London's Covent Garden Playhouse, where he did most of his research. However, in 1808, the theater burned to the ground. Any evidence that Theobald actually possessed the Cardinio manuscripts was lost. So, best case scenario, Louis Theobald did find Cardinio, only to lose it again. The 1808 fire was the second time that Shakespeare's lost play burned to ash. It was almost like Cardinio was cursed. Well, maybe the truth isn't quite that dramatic. In fact, evidence suggests that Cardinio was performed and published after Shakespeare's death, but under a different name. Maybe the play was never lost, just misidentified. Perhaps, for the past four centuries, Cardinio has been hiding right under our noses. Up next, linguists and researchers use AI to search for Cardinio. And now, back to the story. The lost play Cardinio by John Fletcher and William Shakespeare repeatedly disappeared and reappeared. In 1727, 
playwright Louis Theobald claimed that his double falsehood was an adaptation of Cardinio, but he never produced the manuscripts to verify his claim, and they were later destroyed in a fire. More than 200 years later, in the early 1990s, handwriting expert Charles Hamilton claimed that he'd found the original text of Cardinio. He pointed to a 1611 manuscript of a play that had no credited author or official title. It was dubbed The Second Maiden's Tragedy by the royal censor, who reviewed plays to see if they were appropriate for the king's eyes. Some theorized that the censor used this title because its plots and themes were similar to those of The Maid's Tragedy by John Fletcher and Francis Beaumont. When literary scholar Charles Hamilton examined the Second Maiden's Tragedy's original handwritten manuscript, he found it closely matched Shakespeare's handwriting. In addition, Hamilton argued that the plot of the Second Maiden's Tragedy bore similarities to the Cardinio section of Don Quixote, albeit with changed names. They shared separate lovers, a corrupt, lecherous tyrant, and women fending off unwanted suitors. The Second Maiden's Tragedy was supposedly written in 1611, about a year before the first recorded performance of Cardinio. However, The Second Maiden's Tragedy was written a year before Don Quixote was published in English, and there was no evidence to suggest that Shakespeare spoke Spanish. Some scholars believe that he could read French, but Don Quixote had yet to be translated into French at the time. And apart from surface-level similarities, the plot of the Second Maiden's Tragedy bore little resemblance to Don Quixote. The story didn't take place in Spain, there was no happy ending, and crucially, no women dressed as men. Most damningly, the Second Maiden's Tragedy was no pastoral romance. It was a full-blown tragedy full of love triangles, double crosses, and multiple murders. This would have been a huge departure for Shakespeare at the time. Most of his plays in the 1610s were romantic tragicomedies. They were sweeter and more sentimental than the bloodier, wilder stories of his youth. Of course, playwrights are allowed to experiment with form, and none of this proves Shakespeare didn't write the Second Maiden's Tragedy. To test Hamilton's claims, scholars performed a linguistic analysis on the Second Maiden's Tragedy. And they found a match. The Second Maiden's Tragedy bore similarities with some of Shakespeare's works, but nothing he'd written alone. Instead, the scholars suggested the play was written by Shakespeare's collaborator, playwright Thomas Middleton. Middleton was a contemporary of Shakespeare's who was also in The King's Men. Most literary scholars believe that Middleton co-wrote the play All's Well That Ends Well with Shakespeare. And passages in Macbeth and Measure for Measure seem to have Middleton's fingerprints all over them. For example, Macbeth features a trio of witches who sing lyrics that seem directly lifted from Middleton's play The Witch. And Middleton's works like The Witch and The Changeling seem to closely match the bloodthirsty style and themes of the Second Maiden's Tragedy. In addition, the researchers at the Arden Publishing Company claimed that Middleton had a hand in editing Shakespeare's first folio. 
so he might have edited some of the Bard's plays after the fact. And that means it's almost impossible today to separate Middleton and Shakespeare's work. If linguistic experts said that Middleton wrote the second maiden's tragedy, it's very likely Shakespeare had something to do with it, too. But this attribution isn't as cut and dry as it seems. Hamilton's manuscript of The Second Maiden's Tragedy contained many line notes and revisions. The little passages in the margins weren't in Middleton's handwriting. We don't know who wrote them, but it could have been William Shakespeare. After all, they were prolific writers working with the same company. But even if Shakespeare contributed to the play, most literary scholars don't believe that the Second Maiden's tragedy had anything to do with Cardinio. However, the research team didn't stop their analysis there. They also examined Louis Theobald's 1727 claims about double falsehood. The team noted that Theobald employed the same poetic meter that Shakespeare and his contemporaries used, iambic pentameter. That's a style of poetry where each line employs five iams, a combination of one unstressed and one stressed syllable, badum. For instance, a regular line of verse in Romeo and Juliet reads, but soft, what light, through yon der window breaks. Perhaps that's why character names in double falsehood differ from those in Don Quixote. Shakespeare may have changed them to better fit with iambic pentameter. The names Julio or Enriquez were much easier to break into iams than Cardinio or Don Fernando. This was a promising start, but the team wanted to dig deeper. The researchers cross-referenced the text in Double Falsehood with Louis Theobald's other plays to try to scrub away his influence. If Double Falsehood was a wholly original work, they shouldn't have been left with anything. But instead, they found unique themes and turns of phrase that Theobald had never used before. They bore a striking resemblance to the works of John Fletcher and another unidentified writer. It's impossible to say whether that other writer was Shakespeare. Theobald was a Shakespearean scholar. He knew the bard's style backward and forward. So it's hard to tell if the phrases were actually Shakespeare or Theobald's flawless imitation. On the other hand, we know that Shakespeare and Fletcher collaborated, so it seems possible that Shakespeare had a hand in this work. Double falsehood may be a version of Cardinio, and most literary scholars agree it's the closest we'll get to an original version of the lost play. Despite the uncertainty, Shakespeare's missing tragic comedy is tantalizing. Theater troops all over the world have tried to recreate Cardinio using double falsehood. They work backward from Theobald's work to reconstruct the lost play. Shakespeare scholar Gary Taylor went over the double falsehood script line by line, trying to decipher who wrote what. He then shared his findings with performers who wanted to recreate the lost play. Interestingly, different theater troops have created slightly different versions of the same story. 
All of the main plot points are the same, but the dialogue differs or some lines are cut. Each version becomes a thread in a tapestry, a representation of what Cardinio may have looked like 400 years ago. These reinterpretations are part of a larger trend in Shakespeare's scholarship and performance, an attempt to make early 17th century literature accessible to modern audiences. Although Shakespeare's plays are well regarded, they're also hard for the average person to understand. They incorporate values and etiquette that fell out of fashion centuries ago. Even the language is inaccessible. Shakespeare used early modern English, which includes several obsolete words and unusual pronunciations. So some modern actors use standard American or British accents to make the dialogue easier to follow. And troops use other tools, like modern costumes, to update Shakespeare's plays for the 21st century. Movies and TV shows like 10 Things I Hate About You, The Lion King, and West Side Story take the interpretation one step further. Loosely inspired by The Taming of the Shrew, Hamlet, and Romeo and Juliet, these pieces don't claim to be straight adaptations, but they still introduced Shakespearean plot points and themes to new generations. Perhaps that's why scholars are so intrigued by Cardinio. Because we don't have the original text, we can reinterpret it and update it at will without violating the sanctity of pure Shakespeare. It's a story for any audience in any era, something we can rewrite as often as necessary. Even Gary Taylor, who spent years painstakingly scouring Louis Theobald's double falsehood to try to recreate Cardinio, admitted his adaptations weren't authentic. He added, but it is at least, I hope, authentic. In 2011, the prestigious Royal Shakespeare Company performed Cardinio using a reconstruction based on Double Falsehood's script. Just like in 1727, the audience was excited to see it. They didn't know if it was Shakespeare's play, but the alluring possibility brought them out to the theater. The performance was held in Shakespeare's hometown, Stratford-upon-Avon. So, in a way, after nearly 400 years, Shakespeare's lost play finally came home. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back next week with a short Gone Bite on Spotify and back everywhere else the week after. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Gone, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, 
Sound design by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Gone was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner.